You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Democracy is a little bit of a gamble and a little bit of a miracle. This idea that we will all agree to be able to govern ourselves. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The materials you need to build a wildfire-resistant home, are they're all here. They're on the shelf at your local, your local hardware store. What do I do if someone pulls off my headscarf? But what do I do as someone who has privilege when I see one of my neighbors or, or friends being attacked? This is KCBS In-Depth. What happens when the criminal justice system and the Bay Area's homelessness crisis collide? It's a question that KCBS anchor Stan Bunger got to examine firsthand when he was summoned to serve on the jury of a homeless man accused of committing lewd acts on the streets of Berkeley. The trial and ultimate conviction just raised more questions and inspired a reporting journey that we've been presenting under the banner of our Broken Systems series, broadcast in five parts over this past week. So today, on this special edition of KCBS In-Depth, we're going to bring together some of the reporters who contributed to the project for a conversation about what they found when they started turning over the rocks of the Bay Area's broken systems. I think that's just a really sad and unacceptable statement on where we are as a city right now. People may say this is not that significant, but it's incredibly significant to the victims. In just a few moments, we'll be hearing from KCBS reporter Holly Kwan, producer Nick Palmer, as well as myself, Keith Manconi. Stan Bunger led the conversation. We'll begin with his account of his experience as a juror. Here's how this all started. I got that jury summons and wound up being told to report to the Wiley Manual Courthouse in Oakland. That's where criminal and traffic cases are heard. I sat in the big jury assembly room for a while, then heard them call my name. Off to Department 114, where we prospective jurors filled the spectators' seats. By the end of that Monday afternoon, I was in, juror number seven. Like all the other jurors and alternates, I'd apparently passed muster with the prosecutor and the defense attorney. For several other prospective jurors, that wasn't the case. A few of them made lengthy statements about what they believed was the inherent unfairness of the criminal justice system. We could see the defendant was African-American. We were told he was homeless. We were also told the case involved alleged crimes of a sexual nature. For the next three days, we jurors filed into the courtroom to hear the evidence. There were only four witnesses, three Cal students and a Berkeley police sergeant. The students all described what they saw in Berkeley's Channing Way on a Friday night in September. A man openly masturbating on the street, carrying a flashlight, at times peering into windows. They called 911. We heard those calls. They also followed the man for quite some time before Berkeley police arrived. We heard from the veteran Berkeley police sergeant whose body cam captured video of the arrest. We never heard from the defendant, Michael Watkins. The defense never really argued that Watkins didn't do what he was accused of doing. The attorney from the Alameda County Public Defender's Office used the word railroaded, saying it was his homelessness that landed him in that courtroom. The young prosecutor said that wasn't it at all. It was what he called over-the-top behavior that led to Watkins' arrest and prosecution. We sat through lengthy instructions from Judge Yumi Lee, who told us what we could and could not consider in rendering our verdicts, and then it was time to deliberate. There were eight women and four men in that jury room. Three people had law degrees. Only only one was a currently practicing attorney, and she handled tax matters. We quickly decided Watkins was guilty of violating Penal Code Section 647A, lewd or dissolute conduct. And then it was time to decide Watkins' fate on the second count, PC Section 314, indecent exposure. 
The DA had to prove that the defendant willfully exposed his or her genitals in the presence of another person or persons, and that when the defendant exposed himself or herself, he or she acted lewdly by intending to direct public attention to his or her genitals for the purpose of sexual arousal of either the defendant or another person, or to sexually offend another person. This is what's known as a specific intent crime. We had to decide if the defendant intended to do what he was accused of doing, and that's where we got stuck for quite a while. It is tricky. We're not mind readers. So unless the defendant said out loud what he had on his mind, we have to go with what's in front of us. Eventually, and after a lot of detours, while some jurors looked for reasons why Watkins had done it or worried about his eventual sentence, or in one case said they didn't trust the testimony of what a juror called rich white college kids, we finally reached guilty verdicts on both counts. So there's the setup. Even before the trial ended, I could see this case as a microcosm of so many issues we see and talk about in the Bay Area every day. And that's where my colleagues started their work. So let's dig in. Holly and Nick, looking into Michael Watkins' past. Nick, you began by going to the paper trail. Yeah, basically it was just a records quest through Alameda County. We uh, immediately found out a couple of interesting items that he, half a sentence that he did receive, he was given as time served. Um, he was in the Santa Rita jail in Dublin at the time when we first started. But it was unclear uh, how long, how much longer he would be there. Uh, shortly after that, we discovered he was out and that he had been arrested again uh, for similar crimes. And we also found that his history, and I knew none of this as a juror, uh, which is hard for me, right? My job every day is to dig up all the information I can about everything. But as a juror, you're told, don't discuss the case, don't research the case, stay off the Internet. We also found that he'd been arrested numerous times in Berkeley going back at least 10 years. Yeah, it, 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 they had known him. Like it, The police told us they, they had known him. They recognized him. He was a, a person they had dealt with a, a multiple times. And, you know, as we discovered more of the records, we discovered an old address. We discovered, um, you know, arrests for the similar acts in 2017, 2018 uh, from the DA's office that were not received, that didn't go to trial, that weren't uh, dealt in the same way. When we left the courtroom after the guilty verdict, the judge told us, the counsel from either side may approach you, you jurors, and ask you for your thoughts, for some feedback. And, and that did happen. And, and during that process, I turned to Jason Quinn, the deputy district attorney who'd handled the prosecution case. And I told him who I was and told him we probably would pursue this as some kind of story. And I, and I asked him at that moment, so why was this a trial? Why did this come to trial? And his answer was something along the lines of, well, you know, Mr. Watkins is not uh, an infrequent visitor to this courthouse. And so, Holly, that got us to thinking, well, who is Michael Watkins? He's a 33-year-old man who's He's just homeless. been convicted of two crimes, one of which puts him on a sex offender registry for life. You learned about his, his birth, about his childhood a bit, uh, and, and it's a sad story. Yeah, I mean, but again, it's probably not unusual. I mean, he was one of four kids. He was born in Stockton. Um, they tried to move the family to somewhere where they would have, um, you know, not bad influences. And they ended up in Lake County. And then they ended up coming back. And um, eventually his mother lost custody of the kids. Michael was in the foster care system for a, a while. There were two siblings that were... In a foster care uh, environment, but um, luckily his grandmother was able to see them and have some sort of relationship with him. So when you go inside her house, she's got, you know, 
just scores of pictures of grandkids and great grandkids up on her walls, but none of them are Michael because she didn't really have that kind of relationship with him. But he did eventually come and try to was staying there with her until he she characterized it as started to cause trouble, and she didn't want to necessarily elaborate what that was. But she said that he he got into drugs and and was stealing things, and she suspected that maybe he was trying to get money out of her bank account because one time she couldn't find her checkbook. Um, so th- there were all sorts of things that she just said, look, you can't you can't be here anymore. And she's caught in the middle because she wants to see him cleaned up. She wants she doesn't want him out on the street because God knows what could happen to him out there. At the same time, he has shown that she can't have him around because it, it, it brings up behaviors and um, and instances and activities that, that are you know not good. I mean, this is a lady who's basically you know in in she's 77 years old somebody ought to be taking care of her you're listening to a special edition of kcbs in depth as part of our broken system series broadcast over this past week today we're examining the story of michael watkins a homeless man whose public lewd acts put him on the wrong side of the criminal justice system our own stan bunger served as a member of the jury that convicted him Holly Kwan, Doug Sovereign, Nick Palmer, and myself, Keith Manconi, have been reporting on the questions the case raised about what the criminal justice system can and can't do to address the problems of homelessness. Stan Bunger joins us again now to continue the conversation. Criminalizing homelessness its a phrase I heard often during the trial as I sat as a juror. I heard prospective jurors bring it up. I heard the public defender who argued the case in favor of the defendant, Michael Watkins, bring it up. And my colleague, Keith Manconi, joins the gang. Now, Keith, this is uh, an article of faith in the Bay Area that people don't want to see homeless people demonized or criminalized for the mere fact they don't have a place to call home at night. Exactly. And as we've been hearing, finding that line between where we are applying the law in such a way that we are preventing crimes that uh, should not be committed, uh, or we're just seeking out uh, and and prosecuting people for crimes that are just committed in the course of them living their lives. And uh, because they live out on the street, they are in a position where many of the things that we do, who uh, who have homes, who have a place to go at night, uh, they are in a position where those things uh, could actually become crimes. So uh, that is a big concern for many of the people that we spoke with. Uh, and uh, also, as you indicated, for a number of uh, the jurors that uh, you served with as well. I, I think that you said that uh, the jury deliberation was frequently derailed by questions of uncomfortableness with prosecuting a homeless person. Yeah, in some weird way, though, clearly we hew to a system that says you are innocent until proven guilty. And that is beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, Those things seem like they guarantee innocence, but in some ways the structure is set up in such a way, and especially in a case like this one where there was no defense presented. You sit as a juror and you say, well, he did this, he did this, and did this. These are uncontested facts. I don't have any choice as a juror but to find him guilty. Mm -hmm. I may wish the best for this guy. I may wish that something had happened five minutes earlier or five days earlier or 33 years earlier that had changed his life. Keith, that's part of the story that you looked into is this whole nexus between the system Mm -hmm. and the people who serve it, whether they're prosecutors or public defenders or jurors. Right. It's people walking away from this experience thinking to themselves, okay, 
I did my duty today, but what is actually improved? Did I make this guy's life better? Did I actually prevent future crimes? If I know that this person is likely, their life circumstances likely will not change and they're going to be stuck out on the street more? Is it likely that they're going to reoffend? So a lot of people are walking away from the jury experience with this in mind. Uh, and we raised this issue with Jeff Chorney, who is a member of the Alameda County Public Defender's Office, uh, which, as we mentioned, defended Watkins. Uh, Jeff Chorney didn't work on this case, uh, but he spoke generally about what he's hearing from jurors. And he says he's hearing this stuff, too. He says... Uh, he's also met jurors that are asking the question whether or not the homeless should face criminal charges in the first place. It's something that I have, I have heard from people, um, and I think that uh, it's a really great question, and I think that people should be asking that question about that because I think the more people who see what happens over in the courthouse and know what's really going on, I think the, the people would really be horrified um, by what they saw and what they see with the constant harassment um, and the constant caging of homeless and low-income people here in Alameda County. Let's put some meat on those bones just for a second, because we're kind of speaking in generalities right now. I also spoke with Jennifer Friedenbach. She's the executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness, a very well-noted advocate for the homeless here in San Francisco. And uh, I, I, I put her the question point blank. Would you feel comfortable serving on a jury that was had to either convict or not convict a homeless person? And she said, yes, but there's a line there uh she would need to know that the crime was unrelated to somebody's housing status that's the line for her if she felt that that person's housing status was the fact that they were unhoused is the reason that the crime was committed in the first place then she would feel uncomfortable with that i asked her to give us some examples of some uh crimes that people are charged with that she feels would be out of bounds here's some examples that she gave for example sometimes people will get an indecent exposure charge when they're urinating in public. And so in that situation, their housing status is very much connected to, you know, the the presumed crime because people don't have access to a bathroom. Human beings have to do these things. We don't have a choice. Um, Same thing with things like lodging or, you know, I've seen cases around trespassing or even breaking and entering. I saw a case where an unhoused person got charged with robbery and breaking and entry charge, and he was um, really just trying to get into a little, um, a, a light well that was, that would protect him from, from the weather. And so it got, you know, got kind of blown out, and I saw the defense attorney trying to lay out an argument that this was really about trying to get shelter and not about a more nefarious situation. But Stan, as you indicated, in the case of Michael Watkins and in the case of the trial that uh, you weighed in on, one of those crimes, as you said, uh, had intent involved. And you guys looked at the facts point by point by point, And you said intent was here. He did. There was some intentionality in the crime that was committed. And, but getting to the intent part was tricky because that's what led us to a, about an extra day of jury deliberations. Several members of the jury simply said, I, I don't know. It might have just been a series of random acts. And it was only when we consulted our notes and threatened to have the court recorder come in and a court reporter rather come in and read all of the testimony of one of the witnesses, the one who had first engaged with Watkins on the street that night, who'd made the first 911 call, who'd been part of a group that tracked him all the way up Channing Way, uh, that we realized there were specific events, discrete events, but that the pattern 
couldn't be explained away any other way if you assume that the man knew what he was doing. And that really, for me, remains, as I think about this case weeks later, a tricky part. Was he so out of it, quote-unquote, mentally or substance-wise, that he was not able to form the intent to do what he was doing? And that was never mentioned during the trial. Not once did the defense bring up a question of mental capability or illness on his part. Well, and and that's an interesting thing because on some level, the jurors such as yourself, you are just watching a movie. You are just a passive participant for much of the trial and you can only consider the questions that are put in front of you. So I'm a little bit curious, Dan, now that you've taken a few weeks to process this and obviously you have more information now than you did then, does that change any of the way that you look at this crime? Keith, I think I still, and that's a great question, today in the same situation, even with this knowledge, would have to say the rules say he's guilty of the crimes with which he was charged. Would there have been a better way to have handled that September 13th incident on the streets of Berkeley than to arrest, book, prosecute, try, and ultimately incarcerate Michael Watkins and turn him into a registered sex offender for life. I think that's a great open question. Mm -hmm. And part of why we launched on this series was to find out, are we stuck in old ways of doing things that aren't necessarily working? They're not working for Michael Watkins. You're listening to a special edition of KCBS In-Depth. As part of our Broken System series broadcast over this past week, today we're examining one criminal case that faced one homeless man to see what it has to teach us about what happens when the criminal justice system collides with the homelessness crisis. We've been hearing from KCBS anchor Stan Bunger, who served as a member of the jury in that case. Our own Holly Kwan, Doug Sauver, Nick Palmer, and myself, Keith Manconi, carried out reporting for the series. We return now to the conversation about what we turned up. Here again is Stan Bunger. There's a great question as to whether this is going to just keep repeating itself, and the answer seems sort of obvious. Unless there's a lightning bolt that hits Michael Watkins somehow or some way, he's going to be who he is unless this cycle gets broken somehow. And we did talk to Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley about that. She's in charge of the people who keep locking him up. In this particular case that we're talking about, this is a repeat offender who is, you know, just he's back in the criminal justice system because he gets out of custody and he goes right back and basically does exactly the same thing, which People may say this is not that significant, but it's incredibly significant to the victims. It's incredibly significant to the young people who are having to watch this or being subjected to this behavior. And, you know, to my knowledge, he has not been evaluated by a sex offender treatment provider who understands the trajectory of what happens when people's sexual deviations go untreated or unrecognized. And so these are, this is very significant in my mind. And this was an aha, right? So we have a guy who's offended like this, who's a repeat offender. And here we have his sentencing report. There's an area in here that says standard conditions. They've checked obey all laws and be of good conduct, report any change of address to the court within seven days in writing. Well, that'll be interesting. 
Always use your true name, address, and birth date. Report to court when ordered to do so. Submit to warrantless search and seizure by any law enforcement officer at any time of the day or night, including person, vehicle, or any property under your control. And then we get down to education, treatment, and registration. And nothing is checked except for register as an offender under Penal Code 290, a sex offender. And, Nick, you looked at that same report, saw the judgment entered with the imposition of sentence, the obeying of all laws, use your true name. And, and again, people would ask, well, how come somebody isn't trying to find out what makes this guy tick? Well, and, that, and no one had the answer to that. Like, we've asked everyone that we talked about, talked with uh, that question, and there wasn't really an answer. The, a couple of things that we did learn is that there are multiple programs across many counties in the Bay Area. The Alameda and San Francisco have a similar one in a behavioral um, court. Or criminal, I mean, a mental health court yeah, where they the, take people with mental health issues, that they'll, the, pull them the, out of the criminal system. Before a jury, before right. it goes to trial, all that kind of stuff. And in uh, Alameda County's case, as um, the public defender's office told us, they're not accepting anybody currently for, for that court is that the county has, has shut it off, at least for the rest of the year. They said they hope it's temporary. And he, he wouldn't have had, even had a chance to get to there. And that's one of the reasons of many that maybe it did end up in front of you. I know that the San Francisco DA says that 75% of the people booked into the San Francisco County Jail have either mental health issues or substance abuse issues or both. That's a number worth pondering. 75%. Three of every four people who get the mugshot taken and the orange jumpsuit and get sent off to a cell have one of those two huge issues in their lives. They're either mentally ill or they have a substance abuse problem or a combination of the above. It, it feels like a system with lots of really strong silos. Police go out and often arrest. Prosecutors, when they have evidence of the commission of a crime, prosecute. Public defenders do what defense attorneys do. They try to keep a conviction from occurring. The judges run the courtroom. Jurors like me wind up with a case and say, well, he did this, this, and this. It checks this box, that box, and that box, guilty. And at the end of the day, out comes Michael Watkins to hit the streets of Berkeley, and then what? Well, it starts it all over again. And one of the things about that system, all those things you just mentioned that we, we sort of encountered with at least the Berkeley Police Records Department is that I was told last week that, that these charges for him being arrested on September 13 had yet to been adjudicated. So there's three months behind. Yeah. Essentially at, at that level. Yeah. That this was still out there to be decided and that we couldn't have access to any of the information because of that. My wife asked me as we were beginning this project, so what are you going to offer as a solution? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a dark laugh for all of us because I think if we've spent many hours working on this, we're still looking for one. So there's talk about something called public conservatorship. This got a lot of attention in San Francisco. Nick, you talked to State Senator Scott Weiner, who authored the state law that sets up some trial programs around the issue. Yeah, there's uh, basically three pilot programs that have been established uh, for San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego County. Uh, San Francisco is by far the furthest up, like, in implementing it and actually trying to see the program through. Um, it was something Nancy O'Malley, that when she, she talked to Holly and I, was very excited about and thought it, it could be somewhat of a an answer to some of these issues. But it's also, it's a very high threshold. The the amount um, of sort of 5150s and different uh, incidents that have to occur before someone can even be considered for this 
would not reach Michael Watkins. It wouldn't reach most of the people that we see on the street every day. And civil libertarians are aghast. To them, the notion that the state would step in and take control, literally take control of a person's life, make all of the decisions and involuntarily hold a person absent the commission of a crime, for them is horrifying. Yeah, I remember when uh, San Francisco first announced that they were moving forward with this legislation, I spoke to a formerly homeless individual that was an advocate for uh, those with mental illness, and he said, this is my worst nightmare, the notion that my freedom could be taken away from me on a whim. I mean, as Nick has said, it's not on a whim. There's uh, many steps that need to go through, but from his perspective, you know, this is a very slippery slope and something that he is very terrified about. The irony in the Michael Watkins case, and though he clearly wouldn't qualify, Uh, for conservatorship under any of the rules that Nick just enumerated is that he was, in fact, in a sense, taken by the state from his living condition. He was taken away from his mother, put in foster care. And Holly, that's because part of, drugs. of what, you, what you talk to uh, his grandmother about. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's a, a sad state because, you know, he was in the foster care system and um, because the mother lost custody. But but he already had a rough start because you know, there was a, a listener who, who wrote in to us and pointed out that you have kids that are uh, exposed in utero to drugs. There's fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, so they already come out and they're at a disadvantage. And that's not something that is diagnosed by doctors. It's not addressed by schools. Schools, and it's something that advocates are trying to do or having uh, changes made at the state to have uh, someone be able to address these things and recognize this in kids so they don't just blame the kid. The kid is, is disruptive and he doesn't behave in school and then that just sets them down that path. And they're just going to try and stop that and address it even sooner. Like you had said, you know, maybe something could happen to this guy 33 years ago, you know, that would have helped him and he wouldn't end up in, in this spot. So at the very least, you know, there's there's hope. You, know, you ask, what are we presenting? You know, there's hope that, that there are people out there that are trying to do something. It's not just, you know, we're asking these questions. If we don't ask these questions or shine a light on it, then nothing gets done. You know, it occurred to me as we were looking at his age and his date of birth, that 33 years ago in this country we were talking a lot about an epidemic of crack babies and I don't know whether Michael Watkins is a crack baby but clearly according to everything his grandmother told you uh, he did come into the world dealing with addiction issues for his mother and a, and, a, and a drug situation there and so these echoes a generation generation and a half later uh, that we're still dealing with and are likely to keep dealing with unless we find some better ways um, are, are going to be with us for a while. And I hate to wrap it up on a note of somberness like that, but it does seem like we've covered this as far as we can now, and we've all, perhaps, all of us in this room and all of us who've worked on the project at KCBS have found some new interest in an mm-hmm. issue that often is just expressed in statistics and sometimes in arrest reports. In this case, it was personal. But, and it's a, it's a big issue. It's a big, a big mouthful. And and uh, if you don't if you don't talk about it, and you don't examine it, then then it's too easy to turn away. For my colleagues Holly Kwan, Nick Palmer, Keith Menconi, Doug Sovereign, I'm Stan Bunker. Thanks for listening to this special edition of KCBS in Depth, part of our Broken System series examining homelessness and the criminal justice system. You just heard an abridged version of a much longer conversation. For the full conversation, head on over to kcbsradio.com and look for the Deep Dive podcast. Again, that's the Deep Dive podcast on kcbsradio.com. You've been
been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.